Hey folks, another double episode coming at ya. It's crazy, I know, but I promised you what I call business nuns, so here you go. This is the episode that we did on my other show, Dead Ideas, about the ancient Mesopotamian Naditu, which is... Well, it's actually a brand of fashionable leather bags and luxury goods from Germany, believe it or not, so I will let them explain what the Naditu actually is. According to this fashion brand's website, The old Babylonian word Naditu designated a community of women whose economic independence and advancement in areas dominated by men led them to be described as the world's first businesswomen. The ancient Naditu inspires our thoughts and actions. That comes from Naditu.com, and it's spelled N-A-D-I-T-U-M.com. Now, that's not a paid ad. I just thought it was really cool that this stuff has actually made it into modern fashion. (laughs) Anyway, here is the deal with the Naditu in ancient Mesopotamia. We have tons and tons of clay business receipts and a shockingly high number of them for certain kinds of transactions bear the names of these unmarried religious women living outside the patriarchal system. Could the Naditu have been the lady tycoons of ancient Mesopotamia? That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas on the History of Sex. History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. So today we're talking about one of the most interesting things about ancient Mesopotamia that I encountered during my research, and of which I had never heard before, and which I may very well have already overplayed in this series. I like to call them the business nuns, but let me stress that No scholar or academic has ever used this phrase, so far as I know. Yet. Yet. Copyright. (laughs) (laughs) It starts here. In fact, they're so little known that it was actually really hard for me to find any hard research on them. And at the beginning of this series, I really only had a few tantalizing hints to go on. But by now, I've actually found some things, and I'm going to be relying quite a bit upon a scholar named Sarah Latinen of Uppsala University in Sweden. I managed to find an online early draft of a book that I think she has out now called The Naughty Two as Businesswoman, Economic Enterprise Among Religiously Devoted Women and Old Babylonian Sippar. <laughs> Business nuns. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sweet <Sweetie> chef. chef. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, you'll notice that uh, Latina does not say nuns or priestesses, but religiously devoted women, because there's still a lot of debate about exactly who and what these women were. We could maybe think of them more as business begins. <laughs> business church ladies. Whether they were involved in business on their own initiative at all is even debated, so you're just going to have to take everything that we say today with a hefty grain of salt. Which the Sumerians wouldn't have done. Wouldn't have done because no. they don't use salt very much in cooking. Not very maybe much. a hefty no. grain of cumin and leeks. Yes. <laughs> with some mutton fats. Bread on for good measure. A hefty amount of fat. Yeah. Yes. 
But rest assured, dear listener, we have done everything that we can to make this as accurate as possible. So, all right, let's talk about some business nuts. Have you ever seen The Flight of the Concords? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, which one? Did you the see one the song with... Business Time? Is it like... It's business. Oh, yeah. It's business, business time. Yeah. Sorry, it's what I think of whenever I hear business nuns now. Make it love for now. two. Make it love for two. Make it love, love for, for two minutes. minutes. <laughs> <laughs> two minutes in heaven is better than one minute in heaven. <laughs> business. <laughs> it's business nuns. <laughs> okay. Are you ready? Yes. Sorry. Okay, yeah. All right, so we're talking about a kind of woman who in Acadian is called a naditu. And so that you can Google this on your own. That is spelled N-A-D-I-T-U-M. But that M on the end is silent because Acadian apparently is one of those languages that has final consonants that you don't pronounce unless it's like conjugated into something oh, else. Oh, for the next words. Kind of like, like French, French yeah. or something. Yeah, so it ends with an M. Uh, so most of the time you will not hear the M. And by the way, the plural of the word is actually nadiatu. So one hmm. nadiatu, two nadiatu. So that's Akkadian. The Sumerian precursor is the lukur, which doesn't actually seem to have been quite the same. Akkadian, nadiatu, Sumerian, lukur. We know that they were at least seen as closely related because we have tablets with vocabulary lists where <laughs> the the Akkadian word is like glossed as lukur. You know, so. I love They're that the least... Akkadians had to research this stuff as much as we did. Yeah. Exactly. This is Our knowledge of Sumeria, all based on kids' homework. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like a thousand years in between, you know, is it sometimes, you know, and you'd be looking that far back in your history to a dead language like Sumerian. Why are we going to mm-hmm. learn this stuff? No one's going to care. No one's going to be like in 2017 or whatever thinking, oh, wow, this is important. The Sumerians. Yeah. And then the one kid who majors in Sumerian and then tries to get a job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nope. His father's like, in this economy, why didn't you just become a scribe? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, let's start with the Sumerian version, and then we'll go into a lot of depth about the Akkadian version, the Naditu. Okay, so the Sumerian one, the Lukur, is attested as early as 2600 BCE and seems to have had some kind of administrative function at court. There were such things as cloisters at the time, but the lucre apparently had nothing to do with them. So that wasn't part of her shtick yet. She didn't live separated from the rest of society like a nun, but she pretty much did her own thing independently. And the word lucre can be interpreted to mean chaste woman, which fits with the image of the naditu, as we'll soon see. Also, a scholar named Harris speculates that she might have had something to do with sacred prostitution, but honestly, scholars have been speculating that about pretty much every female role there ever was in ancient Mesopotamia, so I wouldn't put too much stock. Scholars are very horny and very, very lonely. (laughs) So anyway, it seems like the Lukur was not a cultic prostitute, but rather pretty much the opposite, more like a cultic virgin, and had some kind of administrative function at court. What it was, we don't know. And that's about as much as I was able to find out about the Sumerian version, the Lukur. Now, moving on to the Akkadian version. It's making me wonder about Vestal Virgins now. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm sure they have a a long history, and it may be partly influenced by this. They do. I'm just wondering if they wrote business receipts. Yeah. (laughs) Now, so the Naditu. So the Akkadians came to power around 2300 BCE with Sargon the Great. So we're pretty much focusing on that time period and onward now. 
The word Naditu means fallow woman, and she was dedicated to a deity as kind of seen as either a wife or a second wife after the god's divine consort, or maybe a concubine or something of that nature. There were Nadiatu of the god Marduk in Babylon, of Ninurta in the cities Nippur and Larsa, and of the god Zababa in Kish. The Nadiatu of Sippar, on which Latinan focuses her research, were married to the sun god Shamash, hmm. which I think is the Akkadian equivalent of the Sumerian Utu sun okay. god. Now, each of these different kinds of Nadiatu, like orders of Nadiatu, were a little bit different. None of them were allowed to marry, but the stipulations on exactly how that worked out were different for each of them. Some were entirely celibate, while others were just not allowed to have children. And the ones for Marduk were even allowed to marry, but they were still not allowed to have children. Hmm. Oh, yeah. So it's pretty negotiable open marriage terms with all these gods. Yeah, that's kind yeah. of, yeah. Swingers so. party. Point being, there was a lot of variety. It wasn't in day and age where you had one central authority on anything very much. So the Nadiatu of Shamash in Sippar lived separate from society in something called a gagum. I have no idea how you're supposed to pronounce this, but I'm just going to go gagum. G-A-G-U-M. And gagum means a locked house. And the Nadiatu would own or rent a house in the gagum. So I gather the gagum is really not just a house, but more like a precinct sure. or something. So it's sort of like a lady's gagum. <laughs> I, I knew somebody was going to make that joke. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, the gagum was located near the temple, and they would run their own household, often with servants and even slaves. The gagum would oh, also have oh, sorry. an administrative building, a granary, and maybe an arable plot of land and possibly even a wall around it. And some scholars call this a cloister, which is where the nun part of this kind of comes in. But other scholars, including Latina, stress that the Nadiatu were not forbidden to leave the Gagum and were actually quite active outside it, and so might object to the terms cloister and nun being used here. But, I mean, honestly, even in modern-day monasteries, you know, monks and nuns, they're not forbidden to leave it. A lot of variation on that over the history of yeah. different orders. But... Yeah. So anyway, make of that what you will. Also on the topic of not-quite-perfect translations, the exact religious role of the Naditu is a little vague and not really the same as modern equivalents in you know nunneries and whatnot. But still, the nun seems a pretty close analogy to me. I mean, we already saw that she was forbidden to have children, possibly even celibate, how she was dedicated to a god, kind of like the whole Bride of Christ idea. Mm -hmm. Also, like a nun, she was not a priestess and did not lead ceremonies, and like a nun, she seemed to serve some kind of prayer role, at least on behalf of her own family. Yeah, I was going to say, what she do vis-a-vis -vis hitting children with rulers? <laughs> oh, ah. right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> we have many letters from Nadiatu referring to praying continually for her father or her family. And finally, dedicating a daughter as a Nadiatu basically earned you cred with the temples and presumably with the gods. And that's kind of like how nuns often went in right so you get merit or something too. like that kind of like that yeah kings would form bonds with religious institutions through votive offerings constructing or restoring religious buildings or by dedicating a daughter as a naditu so nadiatu actually often came from high class backgrounds presumably in part for this very reason 
and we know of at least three daughters of Babylonian kings who became Nadiatu, so princesses, basically. And Zimri Lim of Mari, that we heard in our uh, role-playing episodes, mm-hmm. dedicated one of his daughters to Shamash in Sipper. Not one of the PC, not one not of the Not one of the ones that we heard from in that episode. Her name was Iristi Aja, so a different daughter. And we encountered her in the expansion module. The expansion. <laughs> <laughs> to pay extra for that. So all of those religious aspects of the Nadi to seem kind of nun-like. So even if they weren't exactly the same as like a Christian or a Buddhist nun, I don't know. I, no, I'm okay with nun. But anyway, the most interesting part of this nun-like person is, of course, that they were or may possibly have been business nuns. Hmm. So let's talk about that now. So I'm imagining them in, like, the full, like, nun habit, you know, on the floor of, like, the New York Stock Exchange. <laughs> the little yep. buy, Power sell, buy, sell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like a pants wimple. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the extent to which they were actually engaged in business as wheelers and dealers is disputed in interesting ways. So we'll see. Well, St. Um, Teresa bought a lot of real estate. <laughs> Uh, so first, I'm going to give you an overview of ancient business generally to give the context, and then we're going to move to talking about Nadiatu in business. Okay, So business in general in Mesopotamia. So agriculture was the main base of the economy, of course, but there are a lot of areas that are not that great for farming and really better for pastoralism, and also certain kinds of goods were in short supply, like timber, as we've mentioned before which could only come from the uplands in the north. And so it was kind of like a game of Settlers of Catan where, you know, all the wood <laughs> is concentrated in one part of the board and on tiles that only yield on, like, you know, a 2 or a 12 or right. something. So long story short, basically, um, this made trade a very important aspect of this area, okay? So from a fairly early date, and I'm not sure exactly how early, but probably before the emergence of writing, you already get traders and trade caravans obtaining goods from far regions. I have to do that in air quotes because, you know, far for Mesopotamians traveling on foot or by cart is maybe not far for us, but pretty far for them. Basically across, you know, the Levant and whatnot. Much early diplomacy and war was actually about obtaining such goods. For example, in the Old Testament, when you hear of, you know, the grandeur of the temple which is built of the cedars of Lebanon and the, you know, this or that from over there, that's actually, that can be read as the local king boasting about how wide his trade network is. And Although how, Lebanon's pretty nearby to pretty nearby, Jerusalem but, compared to Sumerian cities. True, but also to be completely historically honest, Jerusalem was kind of podunk no, in totally. the big picture yeah. back then. But for them, that was probably a long way sure. to get stuff from. Yeah. So... That just kind of shows, you know, the extent of what trade meant at the time. It was a big deal. The city of Asher, which is the home city of the Assyrians, long before the actual Assyrian Empire, was actually big on trade in Anatolia, so modern Hmm. Turkey. And they had trade colonies called Karums, like the place called Kanesh, that brought goods from afar. So it's kind of interesting because, you know, normally you think of the Assyrians as this big baddie empire, kind of like the Nazis of the ancient world and everything. Punch, take it over, punch, take it over. <laughs> Deport an entire population. More like the Stalinists of the ancient yeah, world, could, really, you, as far you could as... You go any number of really bad, you know, analogies. Well, mostly just thinking of the now. whole population deportation That's true. thing. That's yeah. true. Yeah, that was a big deal for the Assyrians. But if there was one, like, evil empire that you had to point to, it, it would be 
Yeah, they're they're the famous big bad. And of yeah. course, they're huge clay death star, but yeah, yeah, they they come down like wolves on folds, cohorts yeah. gleaming purple and they would, gold. They would et brag about like torturing people and right. stuff, and you know, so so. But the Assyrians, it's hard to think of them then in any other way. But they actually started out as traitors, and so it, it's kind of like if you were playing Civilization Five and you start out going for like a science or a culture victory <laughs> with all your trade routes, trying to build like a money like a gold empire. But after a while, you just say fuck it and just attack everybody. <laughs> hey, I don't know. Iron. In, no my, does. in my personal POV on history, Perfidious Albion is mostly the evil empire throughout all of history. So, Perfidious mm. Albion? Oh, Perfidious Albion. Who's that? The uh, British Empire. Oh. Okay. The evil empire built on trade. Well, okay. And large-scale population deportations, once again, witness Indians to South Africa, etc. But there were there's plenty to be said on that. Actually, the lesser Bonapartes have done tons on that. So anyway, in addition to long-distance trade, there was also a whole lot of local business trade, of course. As we've already learned, cuneiform was developed in large part for the sake of business. Many of the early tablets were business receipts, and you'd break it in two, and each party would keep half as a receipt, basically. And Stuart Piggott even went so far as to say that writing was developed out of a strong sense of private property. So, Business transactions were recorded for exchanges of things like land, Goods, slaves, tax collections, money lending, a whole bunch of other things. Lettuce. Lettuce. But at the same time, it was not a purely capitalist free market. There was also a highly centralized system for the redistribution of goods run by the temple and the palace. And I've never been able to completely suss out how closely they were related or not related or competing or not competing. I'm guessing it probably varied through time. But... I think mm-hmm. the palace got him. I think that at first the temple was more important, and then later the palace got more important. But I, it, it, there's a lot more nuance to be gone into. Were there also times when the assumption is they're broadly the same thing too? Yes. Right? Yeah, considering so, the yeah, in the beginning they were yeah. basically the same thing. You had the king was a priest king called an ensi from the beginning part. Yeah. So anyway, they had this centralized system for the redistribution of goods. So that they could support like things like craftspeople and bureaucrats and basically anybody who's not a farmer. And these people would receive rations of grain based on their status. So there seems to have been some kind of governmental system akin to a socialist centralized planning of some sort. Hmm. In addition to the kind of partially capitalist, you know, wheeling and dealing. Well, we call it the limited market new economic policy of <laughs> Sumer. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, speaking of government... There's also an interesting tidbit. Uh, during the Babylonian period, the city of Sippar, which uh, most of Latina's research focuses on, was not ruled by a king, but was administered by a karum. And that's the same word that she used for the Assyrian trade colony, but here she translates hmm. it as a chamber of commerce. Ooh. So this city is actually run by a chamber of commerce. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of like medieval Venice. Hmm. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I, I guess. And the Council of Thirteen? I think it was Thirteen. They were all merchants, right? I think so. I don't know. They ruined Byzantium. And then later, after the time of Samsuiluna, one of the Babylonian kings, 1750 to 1712 BCE, then it was administered by both a chamber of commerce and a college of judges headed by the overseer of merchants. So... The Sippar seems to be like the Wall Street, you know, of the Fertile Crescent. So anyway, that's a picture of trade generally in the ancient Mesopotamian world. It was mostly a male-dominated racket, but 
Women who had their own cylinder seals with which to sign and witness transactions were known as business transactors. And one kind of woman in particular that shows up a lot in the receipts is what we will now talk about, the naditu. They show up a whole lot for certain kinds of receipts. So, the naditu as the businesswoman. The most important thing that you need for business, as anyone with a startup company knows, <laughs> is... Pens. <laughs> Branded hats. <laughs> okay. A big plaque on the wall that states your mission and your vision. <laughs> A 401k. Inspirational yeah. posters. Okay. A lot of stuff about disrupting. <laughs> right. I was going to say venture capital, but okay. You need a lot of things for a startup. We're not wrong. One of them being venture capital. And the naughty two had this in the form of her dowry. Because when she was dedicated as a naughty two and thereby married a deity, she received a dowry from her family just like she would if she got married to a normal person. Right. Mortal person. Whoa, 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 whoa. How, how much is it, if you marry a normal person versus your normal deity, what, 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 do you bring the same dowry? I don't, I don't know. But generally it's like the inheritance you would have gotten had you been born a son and then your dad died. You would kind of get that, you get that share of the inheritance when you marry off. Hmm. Actually, often the case in like medieval and post-medieval Europe, too, there were lots of women that wanted to be nuns, lots of stories of them that couldn't because they didn't have dowries. Wow. Huh. Well, actually, that brings up an interesting thing, because in Babylon, you had the right to become a naditu, even if your family wasn't wealthy enough okay. to support you yeah, with a dowry. That's not always the case with religious orders. No, For kind of obvious not. reasons, because you're not necessarily working and do need yeah. to be fed. So. Right. So even though you were, even though a lot of naughty two were actually from high status families, there was nothing actually stopping you if you were a peasant who wanted to be a naughty two. Not at first, anyway. Uh. But there was uh, one of the sons of Hammurabi or somewhere in there actually became such a such a problem. He had to legislate against it hmm. and say that no, you have to have you know so much of a support before you're allowed to become a naughty two. So interesting. Yeah, naughty two might also receive something called ring money. And I don't really completely understand how this is different from the dowry, but in some way, shape, or form, it's considered your very own money. I don't know. That's, that's as much as I know about that. She might also receive gifts from her father on an ongoing basis. So a little that kind of daddy's girl kind of thing could also kind of play into the picture. If you did not receive any dowry from your father, then on your father's death, you, as a naughty would get a third of an heir's share of the inheritance, which normally you wouldn't because you're not a son and hmm. you didn't marry up into another family. But in this case, there's like special provisions for naughty in special cases like this. Also, the law states that this has a further interesting stipulation attached to it. And that is, it says in this case that the naditu shall not be obliged to perform the ilkum duty. And the ilkum duty is military service, which would normally be incumbent upon many land-owning situations. Specifically, it's when you earned your land as a reward for military service, mm -hmm. and you mm. almost become kind of like a feudal vassal kind right. of thing. You've got land, and you have to keep fighting for your lord. That's called the shiptum kind of reward. And, so is that uh, something women would have to perform in alternate circumstances? That's the 
that's the if you read between the lines, that's the question that that's comes I mean, yeah. up. Yeah. Because it specifically says a naughty two doesn't have to do that. So right. would you normally? Or is it because you're kind of a surrogate son from the economic point of view of your family? Yeah, I don't know. Well, then you I don't actually know. have it spelled out that yeah. no, obviously. The other question that comes up for me is, would the woman fight herself or would you just hire out? Sure. And I would assume just hire out. But I did also see some references that, at least for a man... You're not allowed to send a substitute to war. You have to go yourself. Okay. So do the women get a special exception to that? I don't know. Very interesting. Also interesting is that Nadiatu paid obligations to the temple. This was called Pikitum. And these were food offerings several times a year for festivals of Shamash, often arranged for by leasing out land and letting the person who leases it pay the offerings directly. So you're on the hook, basically, for supporting the, the temple festivals hmm. as a naughty too. And this also kind of shows the level of uh, wealth and importance that you have attached to you. If you're seen as important enough and wealthy enough to bother taxing you in that day and age, that says something. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Marge, bring the good pie. <laughs> <laughs> Long story short, the naughty too had her own property. And for those with more than the bare minimum necessary to support herself, that also meant that she had venture capital available for business investments. So, what did she invest in? Uh, it's like uh, it brings like pre-made meals to your door using a disruptive <laughs> delivery service, which undercuts and is you know alternate to taxi services and it's delivered using drones this is where we insert the sponsor message that we don't have (laughs) squarespace we're not a religious organization (laughs) please buy our harry's razors delivered to you courtesy of iltani the naughty two you're gonna love these sheepskin garments they're made of fiber called micromodal which also grows on sheep (laughs) anyway so as I mentioned, there's all these contracts bearing the names of Nadiatu on them. And here is one example. This is direct from the cuneiform now. A field of six iku, and I don't know how big that is, in the irrigation district of Bura, neighboring the field of Shamash Dajan, and neighboring the field of Shin Ikisam, it's one side towards the river Gasha, its other side facing the gardens. From Belsunu, son of Shin Ikisam, Iltani, the Nadi, two of Shamash, daughter of Shamash Dajan, has bought with her ring money. Its full price, 16 shekels of silver, has she paid. Also interestingly, occasionally two Nadiatu act as business partners, or a Nadiatu and a man as partners. And Nadiatu may even sell to other Nadiatu. So I thought that was cool. It's kind of like ancient Sumeria passes the Bechtel test. Yeah. <laughs> if so you know the... In. Yeah. So the Be- <laughs> Do you know the Bechtel test? Yes. Yeah. yeah. The In fiction or in a work where two women manage to have a conversation with each other when man is peripheral or not even remotely in it. Yeah. Means that it's, you know, if it doesn't pass the test, it's basically like chauvinistic or something, right? And it's well, it's not showing women having any kind of independent life, not as a yeah. relation or accessory to men. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like it's if like... we'd only talked about the Nadiatu in terms of having jokes about their anal sex and temple prostitution. Exactly. Right. It's right. like, you know, the final scene in Aliens the, that passes the Bechdel test. It's two women screaming and hitting each other. 
Does the alien count as one of the women? She's a queen, damn it! <laughs> okay. All right. So anyway, in the SIPAR transactions that were studied by Latinan, there are 92 names on a very freaking high percentage of certain categories of transactions. And these are specifically purchases of fields, purchases of houses and house lots, and purchases of slaves. Ooh. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I say a high percentage, I mean high, like over 50%, and often much over. Really? For example, Latinan found 52 total field purchase transactions from SIPAR, and a whopping 37 out of 52 were purchased by Nadiatu, with four of them being sold by Nadiatu. And in 11 instances, both buyer and seller were Nadiatu. Wow. Huh. Yeah. And wow. I don't know how that math works out, like the, like if there's overlap in those categories or what that's supposed I to... I think it can only work out if there isn't. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. But anyway, there's that's a lot of... That's a high percentage. Yeah. That's a very high percentage involving Nadiatu. They also seemed to specialize with some... Nadi to purchasing up lots of threshing floors and others going into property rental and some going into slaveholding, others going into money lending. Hmm. So you had your business nuns that were like, you go to this business nun for this and this one for that. Some specialized in bail bonds. <laughs> <laughs> some flipped houses. Yeah, exactly. Well, a lot of them flipped houses, it sounds yeah. like. But Yeah, yeah. Now, the precise dealings that are behind these business receipts, that part starts to get kind of difficult and goes into the speculation. Jack Kushner, a business nun. <laughs> and there seems to be so like much. two basically diametrically opposed interpretations, two camps for this. The first camp is that they were actually basically just passive pawns and that in fact it was all business transacted by the males in their families but they were just using them as a legal stipulation to kind of get what they wanted. Um, the aim in that interpretation is to keep the lands within the family by giving some to the daughter who does not marry or bear children so that the land so would reverts. not go to the married, like the husband's family oh, sure. or the offspring, because in this case there is no offspring. Instead, when she dies, it goes back to your family. Right. So it's retaining property, essentially. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's this interpretation. So it's a way to keep your own land concentrated by giving your one of your daughters or several of your daughters to marry a god. Someone and like potentially gets you like social or religious cred and keeps from. Uh, yeah, that too, that too. But I mean, this is this would be when you look at the bottom line. Not, that'd be it, right? Not to mention that even if you I have just to mean pay... multiple birds are killed by the stone potentially. Yeah, because yes, if you have yes. to pay her dowry, you know, you still have to pay that. But again, you know, you're keeping some stuff. And, and acquisitions this way, and you don't actually have to worry about giving it over to somebody else. So if you have excess daughters, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to have to worry about marrying them all off and all sorts of strategies involving that. Yeah, exactly. So somebody like Elizabeth C. Stone would be in this category. Who's Elizabeth C. Stone, we said. Oh. <laughs> For oh, anybody okay. who's looking at the references... There's where you can... She's in that point of view. Yeah. Okay. okay. Sorry, I thought you were saying she was a modern, famous person we'd never heard of who was kind of like a business <laughs> nun. Okay, no. 
<laughs> you know, didn't you see the one with Elizabeth C. Stone? <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She was dedicated to Hester, which is kind of weird because it was the 20th century. Yeah. The unspeakable? Yeah. Anyway, one fact which may support this interpretation is that being a Nadiatu often ran in the family on the father's side. So you might have like an aunt or something who was a Nadiatu. And it's not just because you got midi-chlorians in your blood or something. It might be that your family has figured it out how to, you know, keep land within the family, you know. We can't rule out midi-chlorians. <laughs> the other theory opposed to this would be that they were actually active businesswomen doing the, the wheeling and dealing and, uh, you know, being active agents. And Latinan is an example of a scholar who's more in this category. Either way, the Naditu was still somewhat dependent on her brothers um, because of the way the laws were kind of set up. She gets a share of her family land, and she's not allowed to sell it. And when she dies, it goes back to her brothers. And her brothers, to some extent, are supposed to kind of support her while she's alive, too. But all of this is only the case unless it is otherwise stipulated in a tablet. So it has to be written down. So I guess it's something kind of like a will. Yeah. So you could hmm. actually will that your daughter is going to be more independent than typical, and less dependent on her brothers, hmm. if you wanted to. And kind of because of this whole setup, Nadiatu couldn't necessarily completely trust their brothers. And there's a lot of like litigations that we find between Nadiatu and their brothers. Hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, it was fairly common for a Naditu to adopt a slave girl to care for her in her old age because she couldn't necessarily trust that her brothers were going to follow through sure. on that. Typical. <laughs> so that's kind of an interesting tension. I gotta go buy another human because it's other than that, it's my brother and his wastrel children. <laughs> but it seemed that the Naditu was enough of a business power that legislation actually had to be enacted to protect others against them muscling in on their businesses. There is a code in Hammurabi's Code of Laws, chapter 110, which says that a Naditu may not open a tavern nor enter one for beer on pain of being burned to death. Yeah, it seems kind of harsh, but so then again... you can enter was... one for wine is what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah, date wine's date fine. Wine. Just... just like... So, okay, so... How Latinan, at least, interprets this is that it's not some ritual prescription that you can't, like, because it'll screw up your holiness or something, go into a tavern or get a beer. But rather, it's protection for the normal tavern keepers and money lenders. And the tavern keepers, by the way, in ancient Mesopotamia were generally women. That was one of the roles that hmm. you could kind of go into. Yeah. So would you then be married and a tavern keeper? Uh, presumably you could marry. Okay. I don't know. I guess I don't know yeah. one way or the other, but I think so. Okay. I'm enjoying this. So anyway, the Nadiatu, who were typically from a higher class and had more capital, could swoop in and kind of eat up your business. Like, you know, like Starbucks come in and take over the local coffee shop. You right. Know? So they were actually, in her interpretation, legislating against that. Oh, small business protection stuff. Exactly. Other interesting little tidbits. There seemed to be a clear bias toward purchasing rather than selling in their business receipts that we get with naughty two names on them. Accumulation, for some reason, seems to be a greater goal than liquidation in their business. And Latina doesn't really speculate on why, 
But to me, it seems like there's a couple of possible explanations. One could just be that it's just an accident of how the tablets are recovered, because uh, you would expect that purchase contracts you would typically want to keep around to show, like, hey, this is mine, right? But you wouldn't necessarily need to keep around sales contracts where you were selling to somebody else. So there might be a bias in just how they're found. Mm -hmm. That seems to make sense to me. Um, the other thing could be that land, rentals, and slaves, if you think about it, are all things that generate income without selling them off. So you can rent out your land, you can rent out your slaves' labor, you can rent your houses, you know. And so it makes sense that you would have more purchases than you would sure. sales. So that's what makes sense to me anyway. As for property rental, Latinan found 27 leases, out of which 24 of them were leased out by Nadiatu. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's also interesting to note that some of the transactions show that men rented and or bought houses within the Gagum, the Nadiatu um, the place cloister that... place. Seriously? Mm hmm Yep. Wow. So... Maybe that's another point illustrating that it's really not really like a monastic cloister so much as it is like a concentrated place for them to like, you know, concentrate their Illuminati schemes or something. Yeah, I'm just wondering if this whole time instead of saying business nuns, we should have been saying slumlord nuns. <laughs> for even, some of them, maybe. Even your slumlord nuns need a pizza joint. <laughs> or a slumlady nun better. Now, as for slaves slum and slaveholding, Latinan found 37 cases of hiring out slaves out of which all 37 providers of rent-a-slaves were Nadiatu. What are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, 100%. 100% of what you found in this particular city, in this particular whatever, I don't know. Sounds like but... you're trying to say they're slave owners. What is, what's that even about? Lots of people own slaves. <laughs> well, <laughs> slaves at this time would be identified by a distinguishing hairlock called an abutum. I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I imagine like a top bun, you know, hmm. kind of thing. It looks like a Jedi Padawan braid. <laughs> the names of the slaves would often praise the owner. For example, Aja Umi, Aja is my mother. They could be adopted, as we said before. If you wanted somebody to take care of your old age, you might adopt a slave girl. And Latina says that they were probably not seen just as property, but also as some kind of family member. Not sure on what basis she makes that, you know, assumption. But it's always interesting when you're talking about slaves to bring in that context because as Americans, we think immediately of our slave tradition right. in which mm -hmm. we treated them horribly. And all forms of slavery are obviously bad, but it, not all of them were as bad as ours was. Ours in terms was exclusively, of how yeah, sorry. It was exclusively on an axis of, of, of race, though. and Right. You know. Well, I'm, I mean, one way to conceive of it is sort of they're not members so much of the family, but they're members of the household. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Like, you have property. You probably feel a lot more closely bonded to your couch or your comfy chair mm -hmm. than you do to a random shovel in your garage. That's or an a interesting person point. on the street. That's an interesting point. So, still an object, but a little more endeared. Yeah. To... Yeah. Anyway. So regarding um, the whole rent-a-slave industry, females were typically paid for in barley, but males were typically paid for in silver. And females were typically rented for a month's worth of labor and males for a year. 
And it's not completely clear why, but it may be that it has to do with the different kinds of labor you would hire them for. A woman would most likely have been hired more for domestic things that could be on a more short, short-term basis, whereas the males were more likely hired for like field labor where you want them for a whole season. Sure. Yeah, gotta plow that field. Plow the field, yeah. Finally, last but not least, of the specific industries that the Nadiatu tended to have their fingers in was money lending. And Latinan found 39 loan contracts, and in 36 of them, the creditors were Nadiatu. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> a loan was typically barley, silver a quarter of the time, but in both cases it was likely used for transactions rather than for eating the right. barley. because yeah, to rent female slaves or something. Yeah, or, or, or what have you, because the shekel was actually a measure a of A measure of barley, barley, sure. Yeah, so... Something rather interesting with that, though, Latina notes that only one ninety-two seems to have lent out money at any given time in Sipar, hmm. leading her to suggest that maybe the Gagam had kind of like a single appointed money lender to do all its dealings, and you would just kind of get hired for that position. Right. Huh. So it was kind of funneled through the one person. I don't. I don't know. She speculates that they only had one abacus. <laughs> well, that's why. Yep. That's why. That that one naughty two had the uh the Texas instrument that <laughs> everybody else is just like, I'm not doing this on one of these freaking solar powered pieces of crap. <laughs> so these seem to be the particular growth industries for Nadiatu if you were in ancient Mesopotamia. And the glass ceiling seems to have been at least somewhat higher in these fields of business than in others. So that's the naughty to or business nun of ancient Mesopotamia. So now to finish out this episode, I have a couple of quick little treats for you. First is one of the most prominent Nadiatu known. She was a daughter of a Babylonian king, but she did a whole lot more than just look pretty as a princess. Her name was Iltani. And that seems to be like a super common name for some reason. Yeah, didn't we for... her one in the... Yep. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, I think I counted like six or seven different Nadiatu with that name just within uh, Latinan's article. Did the they Brittany all cluster... of its day. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Did they all cluster in property lending or slave lending or... <laughs> the Ohani yeah. seemed to be... I don't know. There seems... Maybe it's kind of like oh, yeah. Mary for, a, for a, like a Christian nun or something. I don't know. Anyway, Princess Iltani, daughter of Samsuiliana, Samsuiluna, who was the king of Babylon from 1750 to 1712 BCE. But it's also, it's always listed as daughter of Samsuiluna or Abi Esu, who was the king from 1711 to 1684 BCE. So I guess they don't really know which Iltani it's referring to or something. Hmm. Here's a little about her. The receipts show Princess Iltani lending barley, leasing fields, acting as both lesser and lessee, and her lands are so extensive that she has to employ an isakum, or steward, to manage her lands. Hmm. The extent of Princess Iltani's landed estate is uh, conveyed in this quote from Latinan here. Princess Iltani, daughter of either Samsuliuna or Abiesa, leased and lo- owned large fields and employed Isakum stewards. She leases one field of 900 sar, which she glosses as 32,400 meters squared. 
from Ina Libim Urset, situated in the region of Tabum. And judging from the dating, Iltani is probably the princess who leases a field from four people and the elders of Karsamas. For working these fields, a large labor force was necessary, and according to one document, the Sabra official through Sin Eribam and Marduk Mubalit, all three members of Iltani's household staff, receives one mina of silver in order to hire 120 harvest workers for her fields at the rate of half shekels. Hmm. So, in one text... One Uzalam is hired by Iltani for the same purpose, and in another record, a man is commissioned to hire workers for harvesting Iltani's fields. The distribution lists of the number of cattle owned by Iltani and the names of the herdsmen in charge of them. The distribution was generous. In one account, she received 27 gur, 4 pi, 3 bon. And all that, she puts in parentheses, that means 8,000 liters uh. of barley. From her stewards. Extant is also a list of the number of cattle owned by Iltani and the names of the herdsmen in charge of them. Altogether, this wealthy princess owned 1,085 head of cattle herded by six different men. And in one case, the princess herself leases out a field. That gives you a little more, like, it gives you a, a picture of what a really, like, Trump-level, you know, naughty to might look like in right. ancient Mesopotamia. <laughs> that was a wonderful sentence, Brandon. Yes. What? Which one? The last one that you just said. The Trump level one? Yes. Trump level businessman, none in ancient Mesopotamia. <laughs> I'm just like, wow, that's never existed before in the English language and never will again. <laughs> All of that unlikely combination of. Such of words. gleamingly golden palaces of mud brick. <laughs> Is there anything that you guys were wondering about the business nuns that I didn't cover? Did they get into fights? I imagine that they would have. Yeah, if they're both lessing and leasing. And... Yeah, all that lived. There's yeah, they, prob- they the probably ass. merged and acquired each other all the time. Oh my god, yes. Well, that actually does Shell get companies. to the last treat that I have. Okay. You, which is actually... They're a, all about a... collecting cowries <laughs> and pearls. It's a litigation situation. So this is kind of like our Babylonians people's court <laughs> or something. <laughs> da da dum Judge Hiltani. The <laughs> yeah. An interesting case is the one of Takun Matum, daughter of Amurum. This comes from Latin right here. Who, during the period of Imurum, together with her mother Rabatum, bought an orchard from Halikum, son of Arweum. Don't worry, if, if you're getting lost, I'm going to explain this after a quote is done. Shortly thereafter, during the period of Guntahun Ila, Isatum, daughter of Halikum, claims the orchard from Amurum and his daughter, but loses the case. During Samuel, Halukum Sumurame, probably son of Halikum, and his sons bring a suit against the Naditu alone. This time, they not only lose, but are also fined. So, to sum that up, basically, this Halikum guy sells an orchard to a Naditum named Takunmatum and her father, acting together right. as like business partners. Then the daughter of Halikum later claims the same orchard from Takun Matum and the father, but loses the case. And then Halikum and his sons sue Takun Matum alone, not with her father this time, and they lose, and the judge says, you're fine. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Both that father and Naditu would act as business partners, and that if it didn't go right the first time, sue the naughty two by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So 
don't know. Which apparently the judge didn't like, so... Yeah, yeah right. well, that's interesting. Like, are there higher penalties if you go against a naughty tomb and then you you don't make your case or you're found guilty and then... Or is it just uh, the particular instances of this case were so bad that the judge is just annoyed at them? Yeah, it sort of sounds like you're wasting the court's time, so... Yeah, yeah maybe. You're not a sovereign citizen. What is this about? <laughs> then there's another one where, and this is kind of like the coming up next part of like the people's court in the uh, next episode, uh, right? So there are two Nadiatu cousins named Amat Shamash and Nishi Inishu, and they sue another Nadiatu named Belisunu over a field received from her aunt, who was probably a Nadiatu yeah. as well. Aunt so it's like Nadiatu all around here. <laughs> Not always. And Latinan says... A punishment is also imposed on the two cousins of the Naditu, Belisunu, daughter of Maniam, who brought a claim against her over a field which Belisunu had received from her aunt, probably a Naditu as well. The two cousins, Amat Shamas, daughter of Ilikisam, and Nisi Inishu, daughter of Anumpishamash, were also Nadiatu of Shamash, and so was Belisunu's adoptive daughter, Amat Mamu, daughter of Sinilam, and Nis of the well-known Ikun Pishin. Both the adoption contract and the tablet where the cousins of Belishinu renounced all claims had been deposited in the house of Ikun Pishin, but were then lost and a new tablet recording both the adoption and the outcome of the litigation had been drawn up. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. People's Court. I'm really, I'm, I'm just feeling their shades somewhere distantly are just sort of pricking up their ears and it's like, our thing, it was remembered. Our name has <laughs> been recorded. Yes. Is there anything else that you guys were curious about? Well, it seems sort of interesting. The keeping fields in the family theory yeah. it seems plausible, but it doesn't explain the money lending and slave lending so much. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know how... That... I didn't read enough of the actual like articles of those particular scholars. Couldn't find them. Yeah. I, I would, they were not accessible to me. So I don't really know how the argument would work in those cases. And I guess this is all sort of a microhistory thing all taking place in one city. So we don't know how far that, how widely that. Yeah. I do know that. Applies um, to other places and There's times. a lot less evidence of Nadi to activity in other cities. It just hasn't been found. It just so happened that they found a whole store of them. Right. In Sipar. And Which that's why. brings you back to, were they really important in this town, or did we have a lucky find in this town? Again, you so, can there's never no way to completely know. know, but yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say. Well, that's it for this episode, folks. Thanks, Nick and Anna, for being on the show. Thank you. Folks, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more, we have a whole series. It's the Cuneiform series on Dead Ideas, so check out the Dead Ideas podcast feed for that. The website is www.deadideas.net. Meanwhile, The History of Sex will be back next week with more of our super deep dive series, Sex in the Third Reich, where we will be talking about the Nazis' worst nightmare, Flapper Girls. Yeah, I, I know, but trust me, check it out. See you next time, folks. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is The History of Sex.
podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.